Well, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Philippians chapter 3, and of course the uh, passage will be displayed here on the screen to my left. And we are again continuing our series in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, the book of Philippians, uh, that we've entitled To Live is Christ. And uh, we've been in chapter 3 for the past couple of weeks because there's a lot to unpack there, and we've seen a lot of different things. We've seen how Paul focuses in on the glories of this gospel of Jesus Christ and how he, he counts everything lost compared to gaining Christ and the righteousness that we have in Christ and this incredible union that we have, this spirit-wrought union that we have with the person of Christ. He's unpacking all that in chapter 3, and then we saw last week how he told us about the Christian life was about striving forward, straining forward for the prize at the end of time, which is that glorified state where we will behold the fullness of Christ in all of his glory. And this week now, continuing with the passage that we started last week, now Paul's going to change metaphors He's going to change analogies, turning from a marathon race to citizenship in heaven, and that we're citizens in heaven and we're to live as citizens of heaven. And so if you found your place, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to look at, focus on verses 17 through 21, but let's go back and we'll, I'm going to start with verse 10 so we can get a full sense of the context here. Here now God's holy infallible and inerrant word to us this morning. <clears throat> Paul says that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. <clears throat> Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many whom, of whom I've told you, often told you, and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your work on our behalf, and we confess our neediness. Well, we desperately need you so that you would open our eyes to the glories of your word and that we would take hold of your word and that you would cause us to live it out in our lives every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things 
that I'm always amazed at is stories of people who flee countries that are ruled by oppressive dictatorships. And there's many countries we could talk about. And they flee these countries. They're, 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 they're subjected to all kinds of, of terrible things. And so they flee these countries to escape these oppressive dictatorships to gain freedom, to gain citizenship in a new country. And in our text today, and as we saw last week, we saw Paul, as I said earlier, he described the Christian life as a long marathon where we strain forward for the prize at the end of time of knowing Christ in the fullness of his glory. But now Paul changes the metaphor, as I said earlier, and he talks about the fact that because we are in union with Christ now, we have been delivered from the dictatorship, the tyranny of sin and death and Satan that marks the country of this world. We've been saved. We've been delivered from that country. We've been given a new citizenship, a, a birthright citizenship, as those who are in Christ now and are called children of God. We are citizens of God now, Paul says. And because we're citizens of God, what do we do? We're to live as citizens of the Lord, and we do that as we eagerly await the return of our great God and Savior. And so Paul's point here for us this morning, the main idea of our passage is this, is that because we are, we are in union with Jesus, because we are united to Christ, we must live as citizens of heaven as we eagerly await Christ's return. Because we're united to Christ, now we're citizens. Now we've got to live like citizens as we wait for the return of our great king. And to live as citizens of heaven, we must, there's three things we need to do, and they'll be on the screen here. Three things. The first thing is, Paul says, is that verse 17, is to imitate those who are true models of Christ. Now, last week we looked at this verse a little bit, just a little bit, and we looked at the, uh, some of the characteristics of role models of Christ, these these citizens of heaven who are straining forward for the prize of knowing Christ in his fullness. And one of the things we talked about, these role models, what they do is, is that they make right use, diligent use of what we call the means of grace. The means of, what are the means of grace? These are the tools that God has given us to, to conform us to Christ's image this lifelong process that we're involved in called sanctification where it starts when God brings us to saving faith and continues through the rest of our lives where God's at work in us, causing us by his spirit to, to, to die to sin and to live unto righteousness, conforming us to the image of Christ. And the things, the tools he has given us are things like his word and prayer and the fellowship of the church. And the Apostle Paul has made mention of all these different means in the letter to the Philippians. And of course, we know, as we read through the New Testament, these are the primary things he keeps pointing us to. These are the means that God uses us to conform us to the image of Christ. And this conformity to the image of Christ is what Paul describes in chapter 2, as we saw. Like, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? Well, it means that we start to bear more and more the character of Jesus. We start... To, to think like Jesus and to live in a way that's pleasing to him more and more in our lives. And that can be something that we saw in chapter 2 is this, this Christ-like mindset 
of humility that is ours, Paul says, where? Well, in Christ. Because you're in union with Christ, now we've changed. We have a new nature. So now we have this Christ-like mindset of humility that is ours in Christ. And he goes on to tell us, Christ who? What did Christ do? How did he demonstrate Well, this one who was in exalted glory from all eternity as the second person of the Trinity, the divine Son, he steps down out of glory. He brings himself low. This is what we're talking about during the Advent season. He assumes himself a human nature. He becomes fully man without ceasing to be fully God, the infinite God-man. And he becomes fully man for a particular purpose, to die for our sins on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. And so for Paul, this Christ-like mindset shows itself in we could call, what I call, an obsessive fixation on the person of Christ and him crucified. It's obsessive. And that's what I want, an obsessive fixation on the person of Christ and him crucified. And he said earlier, Paul, he's, we've seen him talk about this. It's, he's so obsessed with the person of Jesus, he says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The very breath that I breathe, the life that I live, it's Jesus. That's what I'm here for. There's nothing else. Because he saved me. My life, is, as D. James Kennedy says, is just a P.S. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. And now I'm, I'm, I'm here to live for you. My whole life, then, is to be aimed at showing forth his character, not just when I come to church on Sunday. Hi, how you doing? I'm so nice. I'm a nice person. Really, I am. And then we get out of the church, and what happens? The mask comes off, <laughs> and we turn into a different person. No, it's my whole life to live as Christ in every area of my life so that he is glorified. So we talked a little bit about that last week. But what I want to do here is zoom in. I know Zoom has taken on a whole new meaning now <laughs> with COVID. I, don't, I know people are fatigued, have Zoom fatigue. But we're going to zoom a different Focus in a little more detail on verse 17 to pick us apart a little bit to really dig underneath to see here what Paul is saying. And so he says, he tells them then, to keep your eyes, keep your eyes on those particular people who walk. This word walk, when you see it in the New Testament, in other words, it has to do with a consistent manner of life. This is how they live their lives. Keep your eyes fixed on people like that, on who this example. What's coming into view here is this idea, another word you're probably familiar with, is this word discipleship. Matthew 28, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. Just that, that is learners and followers of Jesus, baptizing and teaching to obey all that I command you. For lo, I'm with you even to the very end of the age. Discipleship, right? So we're in the process of being, we're disciples and now we're in this process of discipleship. But here's what happens is, we think, tend to think, I think, especially in evangelical churches, and I'll even get even more specific and say Reformed Presbyterian churches, we tend to view discipleship solely in terms of, of gathering knowledge. It's about information. I need more information. 
I want to get my theology. I've got to read all these books in theology. I've got to read Calvin. I've got to read Bavink. And I've got to read, uh, you know, name all these different theologians. And I've and I got to get my, cross my theological uh, T's and dot my theological I's. So it's all about getting information. So we, we get into all these different Bible studies, and we have, go to all these different conferences, and we absorb all this information. Now, don't get me wrong, that's absolutely crucial. We ought to do that. We need to do that. Paul says, don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We need to know the Bible, we, and we need to know our theology. Theology just means the knowledge of God. That's why we study theology. That's why. But we need to be careful here. We don't want to just learn about God to store up knowledge about God. We want to get this knowledge of God because we want to be changed by God. We want to come into discover more of the beauty of who our God is and then be changed by that by his spirit. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we go to conferences. Not just to keep accumulating knowledge in our knowledge bank, but so that we could be changed and transformed by his grace and by his spirit. So theology orthodoxy, that is right belief, is supposed to lead to orthopraxy, right, prax, right practice. We learn these things so that we can live the way God wants us to. We need to think of ourselves then, and I have a little illustration for you, we need to think of ourselves as sponges, not containers. Now, you'll be very happy to know, I don't have any drawings for you this week. So I figured, well, in the absence of my exquisite artwork, I figured I'd give you a, a visual anyway. We need to think of ourselves as sponges. Now, I've got a sponge here, and you see the sponge, not, not just containers. A sponge here, when I squeeze it right now because it's dry, nothing comes out. What happens when I put the sponge in the water is it's soaking up all that water. And then when I squeeze it, what comes out is water. See, that's what we want to do. When we, we want to soak up God's word like a sponge, and then every day we're being squeezed by life. And what comes out of us is the water of the, the character of Christ. That's what people's comes. And yet we don't ever leave the water of God's word, but what comes out of us when we squeeze is, is that. And that's what we want. Not just a container where the, where the stuff stays in there, but sponges. Because every day when you wake up, the very first thing you wake up, guess who's on the prowl? Our enemy, the devil. And so we got to be prepared. We got to stand. We got to be alert. And we want to be soaking in God's word as we're squeezed. We think of life squeeze. What comes out of us is the beauty, the character of Christ that everybody can see. That's what we want to see. And so Paul says they are to keep their eyes fixated on those who don't just study and talk about holiness, but those who actually display holiness, right? To those who don't just read about it, but those who actually live it out in their lives. And you study them, how? By actually being around them. You can't study them unless you see them. Which takes us to the other thing that Paul says here. He says brothers, he calls them brothers, emphasizing the family nature of the body of Christ. Brothers. Join in imitating me. This is something, in other words, 
You are the body of Christ. You are the family of God. And this is what you do, not off on your own somewhere, like a hermit. No, you do that together as brothers and sisters united to Christ and united to each other. And so this is why there's no such thing as an independent Christian. There's no such thing. The Bible does not envision somebody who says, I'm a Christian, but they're not a part of the local body of believers. It does not. It, it's a contradiction in terms. It can't happen. And that's why the, the gathered church is so crucial. The gathered church is absolutely, that's why Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. It's so crucial because you can't find examples that you aren't around, that you can't see. And here we see, I think, part of the impact of COVID. We've experienced this, especially when the pandemic first hit. We were like, you know, we didn't know what we were dealing with. So we, you know, in extreme circumstances, of course, you stay you stay home. You're trying to figure out, feel your way through. What, what's going on here? Yeah, we, we don't want to go out right now, but that's not going to be indefinite. Somehow, some way, we're going to figure out a way to gather again. But right now, we've got to feel our way through and understand what's going on. But now what do we have? We have governors telling us not to gather, despite all the information we know about COVID. Don't gather, unless, of course, it's Walmart or an abortion clinic. So it's okay to to scratch that consumeristic itch and slaughter babies. That's okay. But you can't gather in church. But see, here's what people don't understand. This is what the governors don't understand, is that gathering is essential. People talk about essential, you know, essential personnel now. The church is absolutely essential to our spiritual lives. And it is commanded by the Lord. This isn't like an option here. So barring some exceptional circumstance, as we dealt with before, we gather, taking precautions. And by the way, I'm so thankful to you all for, for doing that, for taking the precautions we've talked about. It, it, I really do appreciate that. But that's what we do. And, you know, they tell us to find alternative uh, measures, alternative forms of worship. I forget exactly how they word it. And the, and the thing is that we don't dictate to God about worship. God tells us, and then we conform to that. Now, sure enough, there's times we can't gather together, but uh, like I said, we, we make exceptions for unusual circumstances. And I'm thankful for one of the things I talk about is live stream. And don't get me wrong, I am very thankful that we have technology. I'm very thankful for live stream. But we need to understand, I think we all understand, I think all of you watching by live stream understand that that is not an alternative for worship. It is not. Oh, what we're getting when we live stream, really, uh, maybe the way to think about it is you're getting the breadcrumbs, right? Yeah, that is not the alternative for worship. It's an aid for those who have nothing else. And I'm so thankful to those of you who are watching. You, you can't come to church. So this is the best that we can do, right? But there's many people now in our culture now, because with the advent of, of COVID and now live streaming, a lot of Christians I've read are saying, I don't need to go to church now. This is great. I can get up, you know, I can be in my pajamas and my slippers, drink my cup of coffee, watch the service, and uh, that's it. So a lot of people now have not returned to church because, well, why, why bother? It's going to be on live stream. So many are not returning, and that is a complete, 
That is a shame. That is a, that is, that is a shame because they do not understand what worship is. They don't understand how important the gathered community is. But even before COVID, we need to understand there were some, many professing Christians who had a kind of a take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward the church. Maybe you know some. Now, I get it. There may be times when you wake up in the morning and uh, you don't feel like going to church. And so maybe there's times when people say, I'm not going to go to church today. I I just, I don't feel it today. I wouldn't recommend doing that, but I understand people do that. What I would say is this. If that's the persistent mindset, if that's the persistent practice, then that is an incredibly huge problem. Because you see, when Christ saves us, what does he do? He fills us with his spirit. He gives us new desires, and chief among those desires is to be with his people. We yearn to be with each other because we're united to Christ. This is the family of God. That's the desires that God gives us. And if if I'm persistently have a mindset where I don't want to be in the gathered community of believers, where we're all united to Christ in the Spirit, then I have to ask myself the question, do I have the Spirit of Christ? I know that sounds hard, but we got to get real. This is important. Have I truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Because if I have, I'm going to want to be, my, my persistent mindset is going to be, I, I, I want to be connected to God's people, to his church. I have to be. It's kind of like saying, your arm. Your arm saying it didn't want to be attached to the body because it doesn't need it to be effective. But what happens when your arm is severed from your body? I won't demonstrate for you here with the... <laughs> What happens if your here's what happens, everybody. You, you saw off the arm. What, what happens if your arm is severed from your body and it remains that way? Well, you know what happens. It, it's going to shrivel up. It's not going to be any, it's going to basically die, right? Because there's no blood flow to it. Or we think about, I heard this uh, illustration, this story of a pastor who went to visit this church member who, who had not been in church for a very long time. And so he, he was there and he had the fire going and the pastor and this person were talking and then uh, the pastor reached in with one of the tongs and he took one of the embers and he moved it away from the other embers. And as they kept talking, eventually that one ember just fizzled out while all the other embers that were together remained lit. And he showed them, he said, see, that's that's the effect here that that has on Christians. When you're not together with the other embers, with other Christians, eventually our fire fizzles out. We need the body of Christ. And we should yearn for the body of Christ. We should yearn to be here. And we need to be here so that we can follow these role models of Christ. You can't follow a role model if you're not around them. It's impossible. You can't love one another. You can't obey the love one another passages unless you're actually here to love one another. You know, for the most part. Obviously, there's people in our midst who can't be here. We understand, and we love them, and there's things we want to do to to help minister to them. But you know what I'm talking about. There's people who persistently have this mindset of staying away and staying out of church, and yet still claim to be Christian, but yet you can't, if you're not even around Christians, how are you obeying the the love one another commandments? 
and how can we follow these role models? And so Paul talks about these role models here. That's what he says. You know, these are those who make diligent use of the right means of grace. These are those who, uh, who have an obsessive fixation on the person of Christ. And we join together now as brothers and sisters united to Christ and united to each other. And we follow these. We imitate their examples as they're living lives of holiness before the Lord. But then that takes us to the second point. You know, beware of counterfeit models of Christ. To live as a citizen of, of heaven, we must beware of counterfeit models of Christ, verses 18 through 19. So now Paul, he's going to draw the contrast between true models of Christ and counterfeit, those who claim to be citizens of heaven, but upon further inspection, they show themselves to be counterfeits. Now, we're not entirely clear in terms of who Paul is talking about here in verses 18 and 19, when he says, that these are, uh, for many of whom I have told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of Christ. Who exactly is he talking about? Is he talking about the Judaizers that he's just told us about in verses 5 and 6? The Judaizers, you remember them. Those were Jewish believers who said, well, we believe in Jesus, but trust in Jesus Christ alone is not enough to get you to heaven. You have to believe in Jesus Plus, and it's the plus that's deadly, do these good works and put yourself back under the law of Moses and under the rituals of the law of Moses and get circumcised. And so they were the ones who were walking around holding up their spiritual resume saying, yes, Lord, see my spiritual resume, how good it is. Trust in Jesus is there, but so that's not enough. These other things are as well. Therefore, you should let me into heaven. And Paul said, no, 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 that's wrong. Because if you want to talk about spiritual resumes before Christ, nobody, I'll, put, I'll pit mine against anybody's. It was stellar. And you know what it was compared to God? It was rubbish. It was stinky garbage before God. It was stinky garbage compared to gaining Christ. And a righteousness that comes not from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ. Paul couldn't be any clearer. So is he talking about these Judaizers, or, or is he talking about Gentile converts? Because, you know, they're in Philippi, a Greek city, and for these uh, Greek, these Gentile converts who are they're not Jewish, they would have been converted out of these false pagan religions. These false pagan religions often had this view, false Greek philosophies, that, that evil, or that matter is evil. See? And all that mattered was the spirit. And so maybe he's talking about these people who've been saved, that converted out of there, and now what they're doing is they're not concerned about holiness because the physical doesn't matter. What matters is that your spirit is saved. And so they just they take God's grace and use it as a license for sin. Well, I'm saved from sin, so it doesn't matter how I live my life. All that matters is that my spirit is saved. So is he talking about those? Well, we're not sure exactly who he's talking about, but I think both are representative of two key errors in the church that the church has to deal with, I mean, through its history. The one is legalism. Legalism. That's where we use God's law as a means to get the righteousness in favor with God. And the other is, big $5 word, antinomianism. Oh my gosh, what is antinomianism? Right? Anti is against, and nomos is law. 
So antinomian is somebody who's against the law. And what they do is to say, well, we don't, God's law has no application to us today. We don't have to be concerned about obeying God's law. And so we use God's grace as a license to sin, to live forever we want to live. So we have the legalists on the one hand and license, or I'll create a new word, the uh, licensism, the licensist on the other hand. They're not concerned about obedience to God. And so legalism, what it does is it adds to Christ's work. It says, my goodness is, is also necessary to get to heaven. Christ's work is not sufficient. So it adds to Christ's work. The license, the, the licensist subtracts from Christ's work. In, t- in Titus chapter 2, we quoted last week, Christ died to redeem us from what? Paul says, from lawlessness. And he says that the grace that has appeared now to save us, teaches us what? To indulge in sin? No. He says to renounce ungodliness. That's what grace teaches you. It teaches you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So I love this quote here on the screen. Next slide. Yeah, James Henley uh, Thornwell. He says this, The gospel, like its blessed master, that is Christ, is always crucified between two thieves, legalists on the one hand and antinomians on the other, the former robbing the Savior of the glory of his work for us and the other robbing him of the glory of his work within us. Those are the two errors, and guess what? We are all susceptible to both. We are all, again, the temptation for us is to look at this and go, oh, I'm so, you know, I'm so glad that doesn't describe me. We're like the Pharisee in was it, Luke 18. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like all those people over there, that tax collector. He does this, and I do all this stuff. <laughs> I remember when I read that, one of the first times I read that, I was like, yeah, I'm so glad I'm not like that Pharisee. And I was like, oh, man, I am. <laughs> I'm not another fan. Yeah, I'm, I'm self-righteous. <laughs> you see how subtle it is. We're all susceptible to this in one way. And with, this, with license, we, we, all, we all do this to one degree or another. Okay? Now, we don't do it to the, to, to the very hard, to, to the degree that I'm, I'm talking about here, but we do do it. We all, when we sin against the Lord, and we know we're sinning against the Lord, what are we doing? Well, We've been saved by grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. I'm forgiven, I'm in Christ. I'm secure in Christ. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the end. No one can snatch me out of his hand. And then there's temptation. And we go. We all do it. We say something we know we shouldn't say. We do something we know we shouldn't do. We think something we know we shouldn't think. We lust when we know we shouldn't. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. We all do it. What we're doing is, at that point, is we're using God's grace as license. Thankfully, for those of us who have the Spirit, we say, you know, when we sin, we're we're gripped with a a healthy guilt. But we say, Lord, I'm so sorry that I sinned against you. You know, forgive me. So we keep short accounts with the Lord. The licensist, though, is the one who says, yeah, I'm not concerned about that. I'm not concerned about repentance. I'm going to engage in this, and what's the big deal? What's the big deal? 
And then Paul describes them here in a couple of different ways. Look how he describes the counterfeits. He says, they walk, that is the way of life, as enemies of the cross of Christ. Wow, Paul! He just comes out, bam! He comes out hitting them hard. Notice he doesn't say they, they walk as enemies of Christ. I mean, they are. But he purposely puts in the cross. The cross of Christ. Why does he go out of his way to say enemies of the cross of Christ? Because the cross, dear friends, stands at the very center of the redemptive work of Christ. It stands at the very center. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that, that we determine to know nothing among you except what? Christ and him crucified. Because it was there where the eternal son came and laid down his life to save wretches like us. They are enemies of the cross. Because they're trusting in themselves. The perfect righteous one, Christ, bore our sin. He bore all our self-righteousness. And yet we turn. The cross then is God's cry to the world that no amount of moral living, no amount of religious works can ever, ever, ever satisfy the infinite justice of an infinitely perfect Holy God, it cannot. John, why are you so passionate about this? Because this is life or death. It's not just the Judaizers who think that. It's the whole world apart from Christ. Everybody outside of Christ is trusting in themselves to get to heaven. They're banking on the fact that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And Paul says, no, no, no. You're going to split hell wide open with that mindset. The cross destroys that. And it's, it tells us what God thinks about sin. It's so unthinkable what does God think about sin? Somebody in the, in the workplace asks you, what, is, what does God think about sin? Well, he had it crucified. That's what he thinks about sin. That's what he thinks about my sin and your sin. Our rebellion, our hatred for God, because that's ultimately what sin is when you boil it all down. So the cross destroys all it's, it's, it shows what God thinks about sin. And if that's what God thinks about sin, then Paul's argument in Romans 6 is, how can I live in it any longer? How can I live in that any longer? doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Of course we stumble. Of course we, we do. But we keep short accounts with the Lord. But my habitual manner of life isn't following after the passions, the sinful passions of my heart. And if it is, I've got to check myself again. Am I truly in union with with Jesus. The Judaizers were enemies of the cross because they trust in they didn't trust in Christ's righteousness alone, but their own. And the licensed, they look at the cross and they say to revise the old hymn, Oh blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. 
They said, you can't have Jesus as Savior if you won't have him as Lord. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, I'll take the benefits without the benefactor. Give me forgiveness without the change. It's a complete package. You have to bend the knee to King Jesus. And next, we see ones, each one of these, the legalists and the licensists, thinks that they're going to go to heaven. What does Paul say? No. Their end is destruction. And that refers to the judgment at the end of time. And destruction in view doesn't mean that we're going to be annihilated from existence. For, the, for those enemies of the cross of Christ, they will be raised. It's resurrection that Paul talks about in verse 20, 21. They'll be, they're going to be raised, but they're not going to be raised to glorified existence, to, with glorified bodies. They're going to be raised, and then they're going to be cast into outer darkness. Cast into a place that Jesus describes as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, you know, Jesus said, many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, you know, didn't I do this, that, and the other? You know, I never knew you. Depart from me, worker of iniquity. And they'll be cast. That's, that's the word you're going to hear. See, this is, this is serious stuff, isn't it? Maybe, maybe some of you here have made a profession of faith. And, and or some of you watching, you've made a profession of faith in Christ, but you're you're living life your own way. Or you're indulging all your sinful lust without even thinking about it, without any concern to turn to the Lord. Or maybe you're trusting in your own goodness, in your own righteousness, your own goodness before God. Paul says, listen, the end for you, if that describes you, is destruction. Turn! Don't bank on tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. There is a day coming when the wrath of God is going to be unleashed upon humanity, and all those who are not in Christ are going to be forced to endure that forever. But God has made a way. The good news is that Jesus bore the destruction due to you and due to me, and he rose from the grave to break the power of sin in your life, in my life, so flee the wrath to come. Like Noah of old, he builds the ark, and we read in other passages, parts of Scripture, where he's preaching to the people, 120 years, turn! Judgment is coming! They don't listen. And they're swallowed up by the, by the waters of judgment. But Christ has come, the true ark. He says, get on board, and I'll take you through the waters of judgment safely, because you're in me. Their God is their belly. This describes sinful appetites, sinful passions. These things become their functional God. Right? Sex, money, entertainment, food, wine. For illegalists, it's, it's to, I trust on my own morality. And ultimately, it's all about self-worship. It's worship that, it, it, it's whatever feels good to me or whatever seems right to me. 
And there's nothing wrong with enjoying the good gifts that God gives us, but the question is, do those things have us? Right? Sex, money, entertainment, food, wine, those aren't evil in themselves. Those are good gifts that God has given us. But do they have you? Or have, they, have they become the ultimate things in your life? I love this quote here on the slide. It says, we enjoy God's good gifts in this life without idolizing them. Therefore, we can freely forego them when he directs, not because we trust our own abstinence to save us, but because our hearts belong to the Savior. See, that's why. Lord, thank you for these gifts, but I, I saw something on Facebook. He said that you, you hold on to things loosely so that God doesn't have to pry your fingers off of them and it hurts. And that's what we do. So they glory in their shame. All have sinned. Sin can be equated to shame before God. But we, we glory in that. We glory in the things that God says don't do. We, we, it's not just we see it in the culture. We see it in ourselves. We glory in our shame as legals because we're trusting in our own righteousness, which Isaiah says is filthy rags. And we're saying, well, this is covering my nakedness, and it's not. And we're glorying in that. And then he says, the foundation of everything here, minds set on earthly things. Instead of setting our minds, as we read earlier in Colossians, upon Christ, who's seated in heaven, our minds are focused here. See, it all begins here, in between our ears, in our mind, in our thinking. What are we setting our minds upon? What are you setting your mind upon? You know, some say that Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Have you heard that? I think the opposite's true. I think we're so earthly-minded that we're no earthly good and no heavenly good. The Bible tells us to be heavenly-minded so that you can be earthly good. Last week I talked about how small the moon is compared to the sun. I know you guys didn't realize that until you came to church. And you go, oh, the sun is smaller than the sun. I'm so glad Pastor John told us that. And I said 72 million moons can fit into the sun. And yet, as small as the moon is in comparison to the sun, the, sun, uh, the moon can eclipse the sun. It blocks the light. And I said, what are those small things, comparatively speaking, to Christ? The sun. Are you allowing to eclipse the light of the sun in your life? Seriously, get rid of them. Take your eyes off of them and fix them on Christ. So we see the contrast between true models and counterfeits. One way a person can check a counterfeit dollar bill or money is to hold it up to the light. And you can see the, the watermark that bears the image of the image bearer. For those in Christ, we bear the image of Christ. And if you want to know who's truly in Christ, it's the water of God's word. Right? You judge a tree by its fruit. And that's what we do. When the light comes, what happens? Jesus says darkness hides from the light because their works are evil. And so we're testing all things by God's word. Test everything by God's word. And then we want to live in eager expectation of Christ's return. Our citizenship is in heaven. The Philippians had this gift of, of Roman citizenship, but that was nothing compared to the citizenship that they have now. 
in Christ now, they are citizens of heaven. They have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of the Savior. They are born again. They have the birthright citizenship of the kingdom of heaven, Paul says. And as citizens of heaven now, they are to live as citizens of heaven. They're like Israel of old. Israel of old was delivered from Egypt. And they were walking through the, prom- walking through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And then they got to the promise because God was with them. But we're the same way now. We are walking, we're citizens of heaven, but we are, we are walking, journeying through the wilderness of this world that is filled with many dangers, toils, and snares. But we're on our way to the ultimate promised land, the true promised land, through by God's grace and by his spirit. And we're straining forward to get there, and we know we're going to get there because we're in Christ. And so we live as citizens of heaven now, as we await our glorious king, Paul says, to return from that exalted place of glory to consummate his kingdom, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's the promise. Christianity isn't about being delivered from the body. It's about being resurrected in the body, being transformed gloriously in the body, to to be like Christ and and to see him as he is now, delivered from the very presence of sin forever. That's what we have to look out forward to, and that's going to happen because Jesus is going to renew the entire cosmos with the ultimate vaccination, as it were, against sin and death, the transformation that's going to be brought about by Christ, where the whole creation is renewed. And that's going to happen, he says, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. This isn't Star Wars, where it's the force and there's two equal powers battling each other. No, this is about omnipotence, stamping out, vanquishing the darkness, the impotent darkness forever when Christ comes back. The first coming, he came in weakness to deliver us from our sin. But in the second coming, he's going to come back in all of that exalted glory and devour all of his enemies, all of the enemies of all of the forces of darkness and transform us in all of all of creation. Every name, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. So our journey on earth might be difficult, but Paul wants us to set our gaze on that glorious destination where we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We will be raised with glorified bodies, delivered from the very presence of sin itself. Don't you want that? I do. I hunger for that. I thirst for that. Now, in order to have that, the first thing is, you have to ask the question, am I a citizen of heaven? Because that's what comes to citizens of heaven. And so, if you're not, I want to encourage you today. Put in your application to be a citizen. How do I do that? What's the application? The application is this. I'm a sinner. And I need Christ to save me. I have nothing else. Lord, save me. And when you, by God's grace, do that, he gives you a new birth certificate. He calls you his child. And you're a citizen of heaven by birthright. Don't wait to do that. Do it today. Do it right now. Pray right where you are. Lord, take me. Save me. And if you are a citizen of heaven, let us live like it. 
by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Let us use those means of grace that he's given us, word, prayer, the church, and follow those good role models of Christ and beware of the counterfeits. Get rid of anything that we're allowing to eclipse Christ in our lives and strain forward for Christ as we keep our eyes fixed on him, not on anything else, as we eagerly await his return. Even so, come, O come, Emmanuel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy. And we pray, O God, that you would be with us now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.